Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Derek Liebert, author of the new book, Unlikely Heroes, Franklin Roosevelt, his four lieutenants and the world they made. Uh, Derek, welcome to Bookstack. It's an honor, Richard. Thank you. And congratulations uh, on the book. So who are these unlikely heroes? They are SDR's closest associates and the only top officials to be in that administration from the terrifying start 90 years ago this week until FDR died in April 1945. Four individuals who by no coincidence were as wounded as was the crippled president, to use the term of the day, Harry Hopkins, 41 at the start, who was the de facto Secretary of Public Welfare and then FDR's closest military political advisor during the war. Harold Ickes, 59 at the start, who was an exceedingly powerful Secretary of the Interior when that role really had the equivalence of what it might be in France. Secretary of the interior encompassing so, so much more, including his own police force, as is overlooked. Francis Perkins, 53 at the start, first woman to serve in a presidential cabinet, and Secretary of Labor, and Henry Wallace, 45, who took over the largest U.S. department of all, which was agriculture, and who then FDR put on his ticket in 1940 as vice president. As you say, these are the four people who served with Roosevelt uh, all the way through. In, in some ways, they are the ultimate insiders, the ultimate New Dealers. They're central to how he fought the war. But as you were hinting about there, they're, they're also outsiders uh, and, and, and in some ways are wounded characters. And that's part of their, in, in many ways, that's part of what not only makes them interesting, but also, you argue, what makes them successful. Utterly. And no historian has identified this so far. And without understanding this grouping closest to FDR, it's hard to discern how FDR governed and led the nation. Harry Hopkins was tormented by ulcers, then had three quarters of his stomach removed in 1937. But he was massively self-destructive, and he brought so much of his agonies on himself. He drank heavily whenever he began to recover. Yet that was the source of his power, because his injuredness, his weakness physically brought him closer and closer to FDR. Harold Ickes, by any designation, was bipolar. There were days he could never speak. He medicated himself on Nembutal and whiskey chasers and overcame these physical conditions to be the most powerful figure in FDR's cabinet. Frances Perkins, for her part, has an intense loneliness. She said it pained her physically to ever see her picture in the newspaper. And finally, Henry Wallace had what the New York Times called a freakish intellect. He spoke as an equal with Einstein and the great economist John Maynard Keynes, but his so-called freakish intellect 
could distance him from those around him. And he was seen as aloof and eccentric. FBR knew all their vulnerabilities. Yeah, and you, and in fact, the, the first line of the entire book is uh, looking, uh, beginning with Kipling's, Kipling's poem, If, which tells of life as a continual test. That was certainly true of uh, Roosevelt's own life, but it's also true of these characters too. Indeed it is. FDR wanted those closest to him to be able to take it. He had an extreme talent for identifying an individual's vulnerability. That's not unusual to politicians. But he went a step further. He was able to uplift the wounded as he uplifted the country during those extreme years of depression and war. And by far, by far, this was the most consequential grouping in U.S. history, a team, as the historians call it, to shape the destiny of the nation. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, uh, as you say, we're, we're 90 years, uh, the anniversary, 90 years this, uh, this month. That, but uh, this is not just about a change of government. This is a really a whole new phase of a kind of government. That it's an unprecedented centralization of government direction. So really, these figures that you're looking at, they're new kinds of cabinet officials and politicians Arguably, they're almost the first modern politicians in the way that we think of them today. Utterly correct. We can't think of the cabinet as we know it today. In those years, cabinet members were seen as statesmen. They were known as the president's official family, quote unquote. There were much fewer contending sources of power on the American landscape. They would get 19-gun salutes when going into a city even as jaded as New York. These were national and then very quickly international figures. One of the things that I find fascinating about your approach is that uh, you uh, say in the introduction to the book that by studying the four of them, it enables you to provide what you call a synoptic view of Roosevelt. Uh, that, that might be a, a somewhat messianic way of looking at Roosevelt, perhaps, but, but it is a very clever way to understand uh, this most enigmatic of presidents, it seems to me. Indeed. And if one doesn't cross-reference these four lieutenants, as I call them, it's really difficult to understand Franklin Roosevelt. It is they who discerned, for instance, his... Comfort is a cosmopolitan figure who spoke French fluently, German competently, who read Spanish easily. They noted, for example, that he could mimic 29 Northeastern songbirds perfectly. And FDR was a devastating, cruel oftentimes mimic. And one can see how he led, how he governed, how chaotic the administration was. One could see the great heroic triumph of overcoming some of the chilly, chilling aspects of his character to truly save democracy in the 30s and then save civilization during the war. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very interested in that uh, chilliness uh, phrase that you word that you just used there. That I mean, it, it is interesting that these four, they do operate as kind of friends um, through gritted teeth, you say. But there is certainly an esprit de corps between them. 
Nevertheless, it is interesting that Roosevelt himself doesn't seem to see them in that way. He prefers his meetings to be one-on-one, which kind of suits his purposes. But it does also reflect that chilliness, that essential loneliness, the sense of isolation uh, that there is about Roosevelt. Utterly correct. FDR, as the great historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. observed, liked dealing with individuals one-on-one, maybe two together. It gave him full reign to his manipulative character to deal so intimately with people and to deal with them tactically, putting his hand on a knee, squeezing a forearm. That is the way that FDR exerted his primacy, even lying reflexively, because who was going to call out the president of the United States as a liar? A cold, chilling personality, according to Harry Truman, and as you observed, a very lonely man as well, according to FDR's daughter, Anna. And and you don't steer away from the fact that uh, FDR often teeters on the, the brink of, well, certainly authoritarianism. Um, some have argued dictatorship. Uh, ideas uh, like labor conscription, for example, you, you use as, a, uh, as, an, as an example of that during the war. But, but he does seem to have uh, what you point out is this kind of ancient Greek quality of not going too far. I'm, I'm wondering how, how far is it that the four characters are responsible for making sure that he doesn't take that step too far? You see those four characters, either as individuals or threesome or a foursome, accomplishing so much that FDR himself did not accomplish during the administration, backing social security and labor rights, where he was reluctant at best. Indeed, Frances Perkins herself saved FDR from terrible decisions in using the military against striking stevedores or striking coal miners. Yes, time and time again, and as you observe, at the very end of his administration, when he was overreaching and overreaching by telling Congress that he was going to draft civilian, mostly in order to break the unions, Francis Perkins, Harold Ickes, stood flat out against it, and the Senate vetoed his attempt. It is, it is remarkable that uh, these four characters last so long. After all, the, these are not easy times, are they? The, the, the Great Depression and the Second World War um, events like these tend to eat people up in terms of the personal effects on them, uh, those involved in political life. How, how did these four manage to stay at the top for so long when they were grappling with so much? Because it was FDR's keen insight into talent and personality. He knew that he could enable them. All of them were outcasts. They had quirky backgrounds. Harold Ickes defined find himself as a has-been and a, as a loser. Henry Wallace was near bankrupt with his startup biotech enterprise. All of these individuals were cornered characters whom FDR elevated and enabled to soar. And he did not back any of them very often. He gave them extraordinary autonomy, by and large, let them take the heavy hits. And indeed, they took it right up until the very end. 
And which one do you think was the uh, the most important? Uh, I mean, I suppose we often think of Hopkins as being the most influential, but I wonder, does he deserve that reputation? And which of them uh, has the really uh, has the legacy which has lasted the longest? They were all crippled again in the term of the day in their own way, and they all had to overcome so much. Today. When we talk about the FDIC, when we talk about sustaining Social Security, we can see much of the New Deal in Frances Perkins, often called the woman behind the New Deal. And indeed, Harry Hopkins in dispersing billions in federal aid transformed the notion of Washington's responsibility toward a vulnerable population. Henry Wallace has had perhaps the most enduring impact in the agricultural compact that governs so much of the country. But the bruiser, the so-called secretary of Negro affairs, the ultimate champion of civil rights, of immigration, of the working man was the bare-knuckled player Harold Ickes. You mentioned Wallace uh, in the in the descriptions there. He he does strike me as a as as a fascinating character, not least because for him being vice president is not the end of the story. He's a biotech entrepreneur. He ends up making a vast fortune uh, after politics. Uh, so the vice presidency actually turns out not to be the end for him even uh, after his unsuccessful uh, presidential run. Uh, in 1948. Utterly correct. Wallace was always seen as an eccentric, as this freakish intellect. He was oftentimes a vegan. He climbed Pike's Peak. He was a champion paddle ball player. All things that in the 30s and 40s were regarded as bizarre. That little startup that he founded and that was near bankrupt when FDR brought him into government, became a massive, massive corporation, which his family sold to DuPont for nearly $10 billion. Now, an important codicil to all of that is that the result was the Wallace Global Fund. And the Wallace Global Fund day has organized the descendants of each of these four lieutenants plus Jim Roosevelt, and they have come together at this juncture as activists for all the ideals of the New Deal itself and to uphold Social Security, minimum wage, workers' rights. And they work together and they are activists. And it's an extraordinary human story. It, it does raise the question, why, why did uh, Roosevelt allow him to be uh, removed? He didn't quite remove uh, Wallace himself as the vice presidential candidate, but he allowed it to happen uh, in, in 1944. Why was that? Do you think that it was as simple as Roosevelt thinking perhaps his own health was uh, a concern, that he was worried about Wallace's uh, communist tendencies or at least sympathies? Wallace was no more sympathetic to the Soviet Union than FDR or Ickes or certainly Hopkins. Indeed, FDR had seen Wallace as the best possible successor when he put Wallace, Wallace on the ticket for the unprecedented third term. 
The answer, however, is one that FDR by then, 1944, was weary. Having that intellectual dynamic was too arduous and straining for him, and he saw Harry Truman as a simpler soul. And perhaps the larger reason is that FDR would never allow a contending political source of power anywhere near him. As was often said, when anyone raised their head in the administration as an alternative source of power, they'd get it in the neck. And by 1944, FDR focused on the war. The Washington Post was calling Henry Wallace the champion of the New Deal. That must have graded, graded. And indeed, Wallace had become a world figure through his speech about the century of the common man, which laid out the American war objectives. FDR would never have countenanced that sort of rival power around him for long. I'm I'm fascinated what you say about Wallace and communism, because he himself, as you outline, did uh, perform a kind of mea culpa uh, later, saying that he had been naive in the way that he had viewed the Soviet Union and didn't really understand exactly what was going on uh, in the terror camps and so on under, under Stalin. As was that entire administration. The problem with Henry Wallace, though, is that his naivete continued on during the early years of the Cold War. And when he ran for president in a checklist progressive ticket in 1948, he was indeed backed by the Communist Party. And there he was profoundly naive. But in 44, 45, he was no more beguiled by Stalin than FDR or Hopkins. In terms of what comes afterwards, how did the uh, how did the four characters get on uh, with Truman once he became uh, once he became president? FDR was clearly the driving force of each of their lives. He had enabled them to soar. He brought them together for twelve years. This intense relationship with FDR and among the four. When he died, there cohesion quickly dissipated. By summertime 1945, Hopkins was out. Perkins, who had long wanted to leave government, was out. Harold Ickes stayed until February 1946, but Truman would not remotely put up with Harold Ickes, as had FDR in what in those days was called psychodramas. And Henry Wallace was the last to leave as Secretary of Commerce, which FDR appointed him to after the vice presidency in late 46. And I, I love the idea that Wallace and Perkins end up taking a seminar together at Cornell in the 1950s. After, after all they've been through, uh, there they are teaching together. It's a, it's a really quite touching image. Well, one of the bizarre myths, and this it's a presidency that is covered by more myths than any other presidency in U.S. history. And among the bizarre myths is that none of FDR's closest associates or cabinet members were friends. These were very close friends. Perkins and Henry and Elo Wallace would go to St. James Church every Sunday together here in Washington, D.C. Henry Wallace saved Harry Hopkins' life in 1939 by giving him the 
correct nutrients that would keep him alive for several more years. These were close, close groupings of individuals. Again, as you said earlier, through gritted teeth, perhaps. The, the key seems to me that these were people of great imagination, but also with a grip on practicalities, and perhaps most importantly of all, like FDR himself, they, they do seem to be brilliant improvisers. Um, the current president, uh, Joe Biden, um, is uh, a great admirer of FDR and uh, this, uh, this administration. I wonder what lessons do you think that he's drawn uh, from the Roosevelt administration uh, and, and how do you think that he's doing in comparison? To be sure, he, like many, might have drawn the more general insights, an activist role for government, backing and uplifting the vulnerable, and assertive altered role for the United States overseas. But yearning for a new deal is not the way America works because it implies rescue by larger than life figures. It is more than just wanting to sustain social security or minimum wage, civil rights, hopefully. But when we yearn for an FDR, let alone for his closest associates, we're yearning for big men, larger-than-life figures, and that's not the American way. Yeah, it, it's, it's quite unusual, you point out, that uh, these figures do actually become celebrities in their own time. Um, I, I wonder how many people today would be able to name four members uh, of the cabinet. My guess would it, it would be a fairly limited a uh, number of people who would be able to do that. Do, do, is, does that tell us something about politics or does it tell us something specifically uh, about political culture uh, more broadly, do you think? It tells us a lot about the changes in America because those two are the days when the better papers would publish full transcripts of Senate speeches, for instance when Supreme Court justices themselves were seen as larger-than-life figures. It was a less expansive America. It was an America that when FDR was inaugurated 90 years ago on Saturday, March 4th, that still spoke of itself as these United States of America. But by the time he died in April 1945 and America stood triumphant atop the world, people spoke of the United States of America. That's the core of what had been accomplished in those dozen years. The book also, as we discussed a minute ago, spent a lot of time talking about um, Wallace and the line of succession. Again, this is, this is something which is very much in the political news at the moment. We don't yet know whether uh, President Biden will run for a second term. Obviously, we do, if he does run, the question will be, does he run on the same ticket as in, as in 2020? Um, what lessons do you think that we can draw from uh, Roosevelt's experience with, uh, with Henry Wallace? That even for FDR... Pushing aside a sitting vice president is an exceedingly controversial and messy task. One of the great American vice presidents of 
which historians are oblivious is John Nance Garner, the giant former Speaker of the House who was FDR's vice president during the first two terms, the greatest legislative strategist of his generation who got the New Deal legislation speedily through Congress. But Vice President John Nance Garner had had enough of dealing with FDR by December 1939 and declared he would not stay on the ticket. So that was easy. It was relatively easy to appoint Wallace in 1940. But by 1944, when Wallace had his own national, even international constituency, nudging him aside, elbowing him aside was dirty work. But it was FDR who still had his huge popularity, who was a brilliant manipulator, utterly self-centered and ruthless. And he was able to pull that off. And Harry Truman, backed very much by the South, the Democratic Solid South, became the nominee. And uh, finally, Derek, I mean, as we uh, we'd spoke about earlier in the interview, this is uh, 90 years since uh, the inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt and the emergence of these uh, unlikely heroes that, uh, that you've discussed. Um, why, do, why is it, do you think, that this, uh, this administration continues to have such an effect on our imaginations in ways that uh, administrations from uh, other administrations from around that period really don't. Americans loved personalize their public policy. It is always a question of well, who did that rather than what happened. You can see that on the covers of Time magazine, where when you had your portrait on the cover of Time, it showed that you were a figure who was shaping the world. We love that personalization. And during the New Deal in World War II, when America was in extremity, one had FDR as a titanic leader. And Deed, drawing his four closest associates so near to him, they too became celebrities who could accomplish much and very quickly. So the book is Unlikely Heroes, Franklin Roosevelt, His Four Lieutenants and the World They Made. It's written by my guest, Derek Liebert, and published by St. Martin's Press. Uh, but for now, Derek, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 